welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Uh, I'm sorry we had to stop our conversation about N64s coming to life and killing people. <laughs> also joining me is my equally lovely co-host, Eric Van Allen. You know, that's why I went PlayStation when I was younger, because I knew that when the technological revolution came, Sony would never kill me. You know, it's, it's for the players. <laughs> You're really placing a lot of faith in that one, Boyo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, look, it hasn't killed me yet. <laughs> this week, we will not be talking about the Nintendo 64, sadly. We will, however, be talking about the recent Pokemon Presents, in which we learned a lot of details about Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. We will also be discussing, we're kicking off a brand new, uh, we're kicking off a brand new uh, series. Yes, I can speak. I can speak words. You did it. I did it. We are going to be focusing on Nihon Falcom, and it's not just going to be over one episode. It's going to be over multiple episodes. We've already done the we we've already done the art console RPG quest. We've already done the PC RPG quest. So, uh, uh, on the suggestion of our listeners, we're going to focus on a publisher we haven't really talked about a ton over the years. And that is Nihon Falcom, one of the most consequential. RPG developers uh, to ever come out of Japan. And it's uh, kind of thematically appropriate because we are also in the middle of our Legend of Heroes Trails in the Sky Pantheon of the Blood God. And uh, next month there's going to be another Trails game coming out. So it's a little bit of a, it's a nice Nihon Falcon time. And of course we like ease around here as well. So please look forward to that. We're also going to be talking more about Xenoblade Chronicles 3 and we're going to be talking about lots more. So we'll, let's get to it. Uh, before we get there, though, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. If you enjoy the show, we have a suggestion. Could you go and leave a review on the podcatcher of your choice? It brightens our day and also increases the visibility of the show. You can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford and Eric is at CMoosey. And... Of course, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod, where we have tons of bonus content. Our $5 listeners get access to Charlie and Dropouts and also to our various monthly specials. We have a Toonami episode going up next week um, that is going to be kind of the wrap-up for the Summer of Gundam. And also we have the Pantheon of the Blood God, which just went up uh, featuring Xenogears. And we had special guest Michael Brown, from Resident Arc, John Linneman from Digital Foundry, and Ethan Gatch from Kotaku. It's kind of a murderer's row, honestly. It's a, it was an incredible panel. We had a great time, didn't we, Nadia? We did. That was a fun one. I always uh, love talking about Xeno anything because it's such a long, just a long history that stretches back for several console generations, and it's all very weird. So it, it makes for good discussion fodder. Truly. And we're going to do our charts counterattack watch along. Honestly, I would like to shotgun my way through the rest of Gundam The Origin. I'm up to episode uh, four before we do that, but we'll see, I guess. Um, what I've learned is that Char is a psychopath. That is that is my main Char learning. is certainly a psychopath. That, uh, that That's probably a lesson we can all carry in our hearts. Yeah, yeah. Truly. All right. We'll get to all of that in a moment, but first, let's talk about what we are sacrificing to the Blood God this uh, this week, what we have been playing. I'll start with you, Eric Van Allen, and I think we are 
all going to have the same answer. We're going to have the same which answer. Which is Xenoblade Chronicles <laughs> 3. So we should just talk yeah. about Xenoblade Chronicles 3. I'll start with you, though, Eric. What's your take? How you how you enjoying that? I cannot believe the amount of crow that I'm going to have to eat over Xenoblade Chronicles because longtime listeners of the pod will remember that I once declared that I would never play Xenoblade Chronicles <laughs> because of the ridiculous accents in the anime and, and the, the such. Um, and I, I decided with three, as I said earlier in, in another podcast, uh, you know, there was enough here that I felt like this was the game I should give it, you know, the old college try, you know, as my mom used to say, the no thank you bite. Uh, and my no thank you bite has kept going and going and going because this game is just hitting really right for me right now. Um, I mean, I, as I was telling Nadia before we started the pod, I weirdly feel like Xenoblade Chronicles 3 is like a companion piece to Tales of Arise. They feel like they're hitting a lot of the same notes for me in terms of, you know, characters trying to defy their destiny, characters trying to upend a world government that is not, you know, working in their benefit, that they've kind of been lied to about the way that the power structures work in their world and they're trying to upend it. You have this obvious pairing going on within the party, but also like this sort of campfire road trip feel to it. And I think starting out with the full party helps that a lot. Like Mm -hmm. by by where I'm at, which is part ways into chapters two, you have the full party already. And they, they very quickly just shove those characters together and say like, you're all a party now go like, it's a very can feel very sudden in the moment that you're like, okay, I guess we're, we're an RPG party now. Uh, but the characters just mesh really well. And it also gives them time to kind of grow their identity, their, their identities grow like individually, but also grow around each other. Like their relationships are growing with each other in the process. And you're seeing them kind of, learn and open their horizons it's really good that way it's it's really fun i think there's like enough anime we hit like the perfect amount of anime they did not go overboard like with two they did not like go weird science anime they did not go too far on the scale they like pulled it back in from the realm of neptunia and such and said like this is the proper amount of it this is like a valkyria chronicles level of anime that is going into this this video game and I'm loving the world. I'm loving the the writing. I'm loving the music. The music slaps. The music is so good. It is disgustingly mm-hmm. good. Somebody um, posted a tweet where they said something like, somebody tell the composer that every boss battle is not the last boss battle <laughs> in the game. Even, and it's true. Like it, It's like, no, that was the tutorial boss battle that you are breaking out to the, the corals and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> And like even the the overworld music is good. I think the one thing I don't like about the music is that it has the same like flute sting every time you start a battle. And so I feel like I've heard that like, like every time I've started a fight and that's like starting to wear on me a little bit. But everything else is just this is a good RPG that honestly, outside of the load times and some of the weird you know, Arceus style, like looking off in the distance and seeing like an animal moving at two frames a minute. Uh, 
I can't believe they got this on a switch. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it definitely, it's gorgeous, I, isn't it? I, I, yeah. I'm not going to pretend that it looks like a PlayStation five game or anything like that. Like it's, no, it's not no. going to look, you know, stunning in that way. But even for what they have, this is really impressive what they've managed to do on the switch, what monolith soft has achieved. So yeah, like I, I'm just going to be eating crow this, this whole year about Xenoblade Chronicles. Cause I've been won over. I'm team Xenoblade now. I can't believe it. They did it. I no, I really like it too. Um, actually the, it's funny because I agree with you, Eric, that the characters are a real strength in this game. And I, I like them all for the most part, even though they fall into kind of your typical anime archetype, you know, glasses mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. And glasses very, guy. I love glasses guy this time Such around. Such a nerd. I love very, him. Very strong girl with hammer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, very handsome lead guy. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I think. That they they vibe with one another pretty well. Like there's a scene where um, strong black and white defender guy is mm-hmm. vibing Lance. with strong strong uh, hammer lady, and they're yes. like, yeah. hey, maybe we can uh, do the 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 thing, yeah, <laughs> yes, the, the thing. fusion uh, the fusion dance the fusion thing, and oh, and they're just oh, screaming at each other. <laughs> this is just going in, This is just going in directions, but yes, the the the. They were just screaming at one another. I'm like, I, I like this. I, I stand both of these characters, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. And it was an excellent scene that kind of transcends the actual character dynamics. But the actual world, I kind of find to be abject nonsense. And I like the boss is very much a, a the, the villain who shows up early is very much a Saturday morning cartoon villain in the oh, way that he. Yeah, he's but that's written. just Xenoblade, though. That's even the first game had. I know. Kind of silly, but, but they usually kind of mature. That doesn't mean that I have to say, "Oh, this is good." <laughs> so, I, uh, I'm just kind of rolling with the mm-hmm. world at the moment because I'm like, "This is beautiful," and I'm enjoying the systems, and it's so cool to fight with eight people at the same time. Like, yeah, it's that's crazy. awesome. There was a moment where I was like, "Going okay, but how do I set my party?" Pause. Oh no, they all fight together. <laughs> that's yeah, really cool. Yeah. That's actually remarkable given how uh, I remember how many problems they had getting the original Z by Chronicles 2 onto the Switch and how much they had to work to get it to, to smooth out and how much better Torna was. And so it really shows what Monolith Soft is, can do with the Switch, which is it puts them right up there with we were talking about Resident Evil um, and Capcom, what they can do with the mm-hmm. Switch and what uh, Square Enix did with the Switch with Dragon Quest uh, 11S. So mm-hmm. it's... um. Very, very remarkable, and I'm extremely impressed in that regard. And also, yeah, the characters are just like, yeah, they, they pair them off automatically, which I guess is kind of necessary for the gameplay mechanic, but they're so like, uh, Noah and Mio are such a serious, oh, yeah. high-strung couple, whereas we were talking about Senna and Lance, and are just like, yeah, we're mm-hmm. stupid, let's scream at each other, yeah! And that's, mm-hmm. that's actually a really fun character dynamic. Uh, what's the name of the nerd kid with the glasses? Poor kid. Oh. He's great. Oh. I mean, I love him. Yeah, because it feels like they're trying to pair him up with uh with Wings girl, the the healer girl. Um, I don't remember either. The, the of their one names that her, they, I only know her nickname is Mimi because Senna keeps calling her that. No, no, sorry, uh, Mio that, is the one. Yeah, that's Mimi. that's Mio is Mimi. Yeah. Um, I think it's like Uni or Uni that's it. or something. Sounds yeah. like no, it's Uni. Sounds like Yuna. That's how I remember. Yeah. Um, they're those two are probably the weakest links of the party for me so far, just because I feel like 
the the chemistry is not there for them yet but like noah and mio are just the most like that is a titus and yuna pairing if i've ever seen mm-hmm. one i was like this is this is squall and renoa like this is the classic rpg romance story right here but then you have himbo and herbo over there just <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely like trying to smash rocks with their heads and stuff and i'm like oh my god i love these characters <laughs> yeah they're great i play as her hammer girl yeah herbo what i find really fascinating is like i've been a, of course a fan of the first of all the games and so i'm looking and it's like I actually didn't look at a lot of preview stuff for this game because I don't know why I just kind of want to surprise myself and never get to do that. So seeing how there's like so many elements from two in the story mixed with elements from one, like the people from Xenoblade Chronicles one are fighting the people from Xenoblade Chronicles two. That's incredible. I'm looking at Senna, how she has the same hair as uh, Bridget mm-hmm. from two. And of course, uh, uh, Uni has the wings from like from right. Xenoblade Chronicles one right. and cat girls from two. And even the, uh, the cat girl, uh, she has the the core crystals. Like all of them on the on that side of the of the war have the core crystals from Zelda Chronicles too. So there's something is really interesting with doing story wise. But at the same time, yeah. you don't have to know this stuff. But it's a great little like trail to follow if you want to. I think I also just dig. You mentioned like how Saturday morning cartoon villain the bad guy is, and I agree absolutely ridiculous levels of of just like haha what's up kids like i thought he was gonna start deadpooling after a bit like start dabbing (laughs) on me and stuff i was like oh god but um (laughs) i i kind of like that because it almost highlights how like this whole world is clearly just the machinations of some greater force or whatever and these pawns are so insignificant that this dude is just like moonwalking and stabbing them and stuff like that. Like I almost want him to be like more. I want I want like Fan Daniel energy out of this guy is what I want. That's total Some Fan Final Daniel Fantasy energy. 14 Fan Daniel energy of just like dabbing on people. Uh it's such a JRPG and it's like unapologetically so, like to the point where like all the characters are watching um in a movie theater, the villains. And yes. then it's doing oh the spotlight God. thing where yes. it's pulling back. It's like, here's another spotlight. And somebody else is talking, another spotlight. Hello. <laughs> it's it's so cheesy, though, but like so good. It's I, And we haven't even talked about the combat yet. I think the combat's really good. I, it, I really like this. Yeah. It, it, I, I feel like it's found a really good way of doing the MMO single player combat. And, and giving you enough tools to feel like you're doing things without necessarily overwhelming you at first. I like that I only have like three arts at a time on a character and I'm yeah. having to really think about, okay, when are my cooldowns off? What are my rotations looking like? How should I be positioning? How should I be bandaging this fight? I feel like I'm challenged but never overwhelmed and that's really good. But then you go fight an elite enemy and all of a sudden this dude is just running over your team and you're like, oh, <laughs> Oh, there's I thought this out. things I need to learn about this system or, or probably more tools learn how that to I do need cancels. at my disposal. That's what it yeah. comes down to. Yeah. 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 There's like cancels and stuff in this game. I mean, like there's an ability that Noah gets right away that literally is like, you will do more damage if you attack cancel this move. If you just use it by itself, it's useless. But if you attack cancel this move, it's really good. And that yeah, was, I was doing like 1200 game. damage instantly. And I was also, mm-hmm. I also put the, um, the buff that increased his attack on him oh, as yeah. well. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I was doing the side attack and then I was doing the, the cancel attack that gives you a lot more power. And I was like, oh, heck yeah. Look at, look at all the damage I'm doing. So much damage. Look at those numbers go up. That's an uh-huh. RPG. One character I want to shout out, like one design that I really like. I've mostly been playing as Noah, but mm. Mio is like the coolest tank design I've seen in a long time because she is like a tank. She wants the aggro, yeah. but she's also like a dancer archetype. Yeah, yeah. And her whole thing is that she's all about attracting aggro and then building up evasion and like basically yeah. dodging all the hits, almost like a Myrmidon from Fire Emblem in that way, where it's like this character that is... I mean, I think she is higher HP as well. Like they do kind of balance it that way. But like design wise, she's supposed to be this character that is, you know, grabbing the literal like eye attention of enemies with all the moves she's doing. And then, you know, in comes Hammer Girl behind her. And you'd think that those two roles would be swapped, right? You'd think that like Big Hammer would be tank and flashy dancer blades would be the the dps but the way they flip that and then use that dynamic and even show you that dynamic when you're fighting that team in the cutscene, and yeah. then you get to play as them later and they're teaching it to you is so cool it's just little touches that you can tell like a team that has worked on rpgs for a long time and has a lot of cool ideas about what to do with rpgs is working on this and coming up with neat ways of doing this stuff and it just it feels it, it is an RPG made by people who like RPGs for people who like RPGs. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of describing it, actually. I actually, like, I can switch classes now, and I just love how, Eric, you mentioned the, even that the role of tank is different compared to, mm-hmm. it depends mm-hmm. on what class I take. Like, Lance is the typical meathead tank where, hey, come at me, I got high defense. And oh, whereas variable turret Neo, is, like, the best move ever, by the way. I love variable yeah. turret. <laughs> I'm looking at that big ass like what is like a gun shield lance thing mm-hmm. is like what Ryan had only times ten. So yeah, I just love the way it does that. And now that I can change classes, I've actually kind of been switching between characters because I want to build everyone up. So I'm learning how to do uh, healing with those little bird things that fly all around mm-hmm. you. I'm learning mm-hmm. how to do healing with like just normal, you know, my my staff sort of stuff, but. Yeah, there's a lot to learn, but it's all very fun to learn. So I'm not really complaining. There's so many side quests and holy crap, they're actually Mm -hmm. really in depth. So it's like going off on a separate story. And I think people have mentioned that it's not like just, oh, hey, can you fetch these things for me? Which you can do, too, and turn them in right away, which is very, very handy Mm -hmm. via the the card system. But just like that's how you meet. I met a whole new character just going on the side quest that I didn't really have to go on. And now he's with me. I was like, oh, cool. Um, by the way, Ethel is, is, is freaking amazing. Like, Xenoblade has always had this really ten- really great tendency of having these, like, super amazing badass women in the military roles. Like, uh, last um, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was not Bridget, but her... Uh, was it Bridget? No, Bridget was the fi- was the flame blade. But yeah. Is like, Batman just- is saying Morag? Is that Morag, somebody? yes. Okay. Morag. Uh, she had a stupid hat, but she was amazing. Um, is, is the character you're talking about the one that has a sword and, and wears a white and was it all like the trailers and stuff who, who I can only refer to as sword mommy. Is that like, is that the character? Well, he's a daddy. About? So I don't, think, okay, this uh, is different characters. Sword so. mommy? There is, there's sword oh mommy in this game and I, I am on the hunt. Uh, oh, I'm sword looking. mommy, I think is Ethel. Um, okay. Is Ethel. Okay. And I, just, I gotta she pops know up what I gotta look the, for in this game. <laughs> she pops up through the main story. Like you can't miss her. Oh, okay. Good. Good. I want to make sure that's signposted, just to be clear. You know, completionist playthrough. I feel a little guilty because I really want to play. I also really want to play Trails in the Sky, which I've been 
extremely vibing with uh, because I just find it very comfortable actually in that sort of weird Lord of the Rings way. Maybe because the world building in that game is so thorough and I just instantly want to enjoy that. But uh, Xenoblade Chronicles 3... You know, whenever I pick it up, I'm kind of I kind of vibe with it. So I, I think I'm going to be playing it for the the few for the duration for the foreseeable future. They were so. they were really really smart to release it early. Holy mm-hmm. oh yeah, like mm-hmm. that could yeah, yeah, that was mm-hmm. the best thing I could have done. And it's everybody's playing it right now, or at least all the nerds are playing it. And I, it sure is uh it sure is catching a lot of people's attention. And I have to say, it's it's really well done. Yeah, like yeah. I, 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 even the story i'm like it's not like it's actively annoying it's very xenoblade so it is what it is it's if you remember xenoblade chronicles one i don't know how far you got into it but one of the first major hurdles you have to get over is i can't remember his name was brown mask or uh metal face or just the real like snarky uh big tubby um xeno uh, robot character. I can't remember his name, but he was like, oh, it's the Minato boy. So it's just, <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to Xenoblade for trash-ass villains with, like, trash-ass UK accents or British accents. Like, I gotta I gotta have this. The accents are egregious, once again. I do I do feel obligated to it. say that. I love but it. Oh, they're great. They went, they, they went double on the, on the they accents. Say, the they literally say, hup, hup, in, like, the first, hup, hup. like, hip, hip. ten seconds of the game. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Yes, this is also, exactly the accent. Nadia did warn me that there was a Starship Trooper scene in this game, and I, I don't think you. I properly oh, appreciated totally the. Lo- it is. It's so close. I almost feel like it's an homage. Like I want to ask the team, it feels it, like, like it. is this supposed to be an homage to Starship Troopers? If you do, if tell is, me because I would totally write a story about that. That's amazing. I'm gonna look into this. I'm gonna look into this. Please do. I'm curious. Curious. Once my email works again, I'm gonna look into this. Is his email still not working, Eric? <laughs> we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> so no. <laughs> so please look forward to this being Xenoblade Chronicles Hour as we continue to play it. I mean, I got actually a lot of games just kind of floating around that I would like to get into. Kind of feels like the release drought's over. Like I would love to play Bear and Breakfast as well. I hear but... it's great. It's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I want to put all of my uh, attention into Xenoblade Chronicles 3 right now. So please look forward to us talking about it a lot more. Okay. It's time now for a series of random encounters. The year of Tactics continues as Tactics Ogre is finally confirmed for a November 11th date on PS4, PS5, Switch, and Steam. Although, dear God, was up with those rounded, smoothed pixels? Ew. Yes, they aren't really attractive, are they, Eric? No, no. I'm I, I'm hopeful there's like a switch or a toggle somewhere because those those smooth pixels are too smooth. It's it's too smooth. Crypt of the Necro Dancer is getting big new DLC in early access today. Switch sales have slowed, but with Nintendo blaming component shortages. Xenoblade Chronicles 3 has the largest UK launch yet for the series in terms of box sales. Sony isn't too thrilled about Microsoft buying Activision Blizzard, apparently. And Square Enix's farming RPG Harvestella got more details and will occupy all three of Eric's remaining brain cells in November. (laughs) Eric, uh, Harvestella looks really cool. 
<laughs> I want to stress that I wrote these notes, so this is me making fun of me, not Cat making fun of me. <laughs> no, I'm totally making fun of you. It's, I, I read it, so it's all good. But Cat our knows tops- I only have two cells left. <laughs> This week's episode of Axe of the Blood God is brought to you by NordVPN. In Pokemon, use repels to stop random encounters because sometimes you just don't want monsters coming in to your computer and NordVPN helps that. That was a very tortured and wonderful comparison. But the point is NordVPN is very, very good. It uses wired guard VPN technology, multi-hop, split tunneling, and Tor connections in numerous service locations and MeshNet features. So many technological terms, but the point is NordVPN, very good. And that's why we are letting them sponsor this week's episode of Axel Blood God. Yeah, I think my internet needs protection. My internet is dangerous and out there all alone on the high seas. And so I think going over to NordVPN and using Blood God, that is nordvpn.com slash blood God to get a huge discount on my NordVPN plan sounds like a good idea. Let me tell you, friends of the show, I am a stranger in the northern wilds of Canada and if you are like me if you are a Canadian you know how badly our streaming services suck so NordVPN can let you get around that by letting you set your settings to whatever country you want therefore uh, you are not restricted by the whims of the CRTC do it go ahead and level up your privacy by grabbing NordVPN grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan, plus free threat protection, plus one additional month for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. But our top story is that we finally got more Pokemon Scarlet and Violet information because there's a Pokemon Presents earlier this week, and we got to be welcomed to the Pardea region, Paldea region, Paldea, course, yeah. which is based on Spain Paldea. and has Pokemon motorcycles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, motorcycle, one of them runs and just looks like a motorcycle. <laughs> I'm very unsettled by that one. I'm not choosing that one. He's, uh, something's wrong with him. I, I love him. He's great. <laughs> He's no, I'm, I'm walking for Flintstones reference. I love it. <laughs> Yabba dabba doo. <laughs> I'm going for sleek ass jet silver Pokemon. He looks cool. This month, uh, this month's meme sensation. We already had Lechonk, the year of Lechonk. Great. Now, uh, the latest one to take uh, the internet by storm is, of course, Fido which I commented to Reb that I've only known it for five minutes and if anything happened to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Fido is very cute. It reminded me. So, okay. Uh, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet will allow you to have Pokemon running by your side, which is great. That's awesome. Strongly approve of this feature coming back. All I want is to be able to have a pet Pokemon that's just along by your side, but doesn't have to fight. Because I would 100% make Fido just a little pet mm. that trails mm-hmm. after me. Can you imagine what kind of jealousy that would stoke in the Pokemon world where you have Pokemon who have to like hurt themselves for their trainers and then like the privileged Pokemon who just kind of gets to trot alongside the owner as the favorite? Oh man, that would be like this. That'd be a great episode of the anime. That would be dark. <laughs> Sorry, Pokemon. 
You need to earn your place by my side. Otherwise, you're just fodder. You're just fodder if you're lucky you're going in the box. Otherwise, I didn't you know see this that chimchar a... over there. That chimchar is over in the ditch because it doesn't have good enough stats. Do you want to be that chimchar? You're lucky to even be in my party. I let you stay in my box. So I'm just saying. Y- y'all joke, but I learned literally today that apparently in an arc of the Pokemon anime, at one point, Ash gathers every Pokemon he's ever caught together and has them all like train and fight each other so he can decide what team he's going to take to the Masters League. Wow. Even and Butterfree came back? Butterfree's like, I got I don't, tail. I don't think I saw back. Butterfree. I don't think, okay. I don't, I don't think Butterfree came back. <laughs> he's the smart one then. No, Butterfree like, is gone. Butterfree yeah, was yeah. released. Butterfree went home and became a family Butterfree. All right. <laughs> so, like, uh, at this point, Ash is actually a super trainer. Like, he's oh, got 100%. Charizard, and he, he's got an Infernape, and he's Dragonite. Got the f- fancy Ash's Greninja. <laughs> mm-hmm. Special yeah. Ash Lucario. Greninja. He's got Snorlax, who's just OP mm-hmm. in general. Oh, Snorlax is OP, period. That's yeah, a top so five Pokemon for me. Ash, Ash, Ash has a hell of a team. That he can put together for any given league. It's amazing that he took as long as he did. It's clear that he's just not very good at battling. <laughs> 20 years. 20 years. That's all. Ash and Hop shaking hands, being completely incompetent and failing upwards. I love Hop. Poor Hop. Oh, Hop. <laughs> he's Ash, my son. Ash wandering the world, ageless, forever doomed. Ageless. Ageless my ass. He's married to Blue. No, Red's I, married to Blue. <laughs> oh, you got a point there. Sorry. I, Red and Ash Red are is... two very different characters. You're right. Red and Blue do actually grow up. They become teenagers in the world. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. And you're right. He, he totally does marry Blue. I love it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just on vacation uh, together like roommates. Oh, my God. They're roommates. Um, yeah. So the, the the other thing that we saw in the Pokemon Presents that I kind of wanted to, to put out there for, for y'all hardcore Pokemon fans is terrestrializing so like the pokemon I hate it. they, they I can hate like it. turn into jewels which is weird and it, like game freak always does this where like we've got a new gimmick for this one and everyone's like oh god what's it gonna be this time and this time it's just you hit a button and now the pokemon changes type and it's kind of like nature's is what i've gathered from mm. talking to friend of the show and pokemon no, master can Kenneth Shepard. Type. like so you can literally well, yeah I mean, it's like each Pokemon has their own like Terra type. And that is so like you could have an Eevee that is Terra type to water. So when you terrestrialize, you become water type. But you yeah. could also have an Eevee that's a different Terra type that would then terrestrialize to that type instead. It's, it's a cool mechanic. I hate the crystal look. Yeah, like, it's not I, a good I just, look. I just yeah, like a terrible look. the Fuecoco, I think it is, has like a chandelier on its head. I was like, oh, this is some fan of the opera shit right here. I like this. But it is such a weird look. Like, I kind of like it because I'm a crow who likes tacky, shiny things. But mm. I acknowledge that it's not exactly the most wonderful looking gimmick they've ever had. Does the, does the Switch have some sort of graphics thing that Game Freak wanted to play around with? I don't know. But uh, they look delicious. They look like rock candy. Alexia <laughs> says, like, I've never been a, been a fan of these form gimmicks. I agree. I mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. miss Gen 5. Uh, that was the last, or as we call it, the last good gen. A witch Stalker says, they just remind me of stuff I'd see when I went at the black glass factory my dad used to work at. <laughs> yeah, I love that kind of stuff. I love like looking at, like if I go into a store with jewelry, I don't look at the rings and stuff. I don't care about that. I go to like little figurines and stuff that they have. They're like, oh, look at this cool little 
glass tiger or whatever. That's the stuff I'm into. So I, I appreciate it for that. The tacky side of me is just like, wow, I, I love this. Somebody asked what we think of Paul Day and Whooper. And my perfect. reaction is brown. No, perfect. There's what, what is perfect? What is perfect about it? It's just a different color. What is Quagsire going to look like, though? This he, is a build He's up really tired, and he got mud, and then his like little little feeler things turned into like a skull and crossbones because he's poison type now. He's adorable. He's a short king. We support him in all his endeavors. I've heard that basically axolotls are extremely sensitive to environmental changes, so it could be someone polluted something yet again. I, I also agree, Zubat Man, that like gigantamax did feel cool in the soccer stadium specifically and i think if they had just left it to be like this is just for the gym battles i would have liked it a little bit more because i do remember back god that was e3 2019 i want to say is when i went and demoed pokemon sword and shield and i remember playing that and being like this is the coolest thing ever like trainer battles in a soccer stadium and it's like you're you're fighting nessa and she turns around and like chucks the big pokeball and the big pokemon comes out like it was a really cool moment i was like wow this is is like really step forward for pokemon in a way then every single battle came down to when you used your damn gigantamax form yeah and it was like two options to be able to do it and it got to the point where it was banned by Smogon, and yeah, I just didn't find it particularly fun in three v three. And I'm kind of hopeful that you know terrorizing is more fun. I just don't like the aesthetic. I don't like the aesthetic. But mm-hmm. let's talk really quickly about the open world. So they confirmed that there will be three separate storylines. Uh, one of them will be gyms that you could ostensibly explore in any order along with uh, being able to capture legendaries and also having a treasure hunt kind of thing. And uh, at first blush, it looks very, very different from your typical Pokemon experience uh, because it's more free roaming. But I think it kind of remains to be seen just how free you actually are because it sounds like the gyms don't actually scale with you or that's the rumor, in which case, well then you kind of have to go to the gyms yeah. in a particular order. So I'm a little confused on that, on that point. I, I wonder find it if... hard to believe they won't scale or there won't be some sort of thing in there to make it so that you're not like level 99 and going up against the well, rock gym like from level, level five. nine going up against a level 60 gym. Oh, I eight. love that. I love that mental picture of like you walk in feeling all like confident and then a gym leader just kicks your ass is like, nah, get out. <laughs> Wrong gym. Uh, you walked into the wrong gym today, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but I, I feel like maybe some of their goal is that you do all these things concurrently. And so maybe you're working on a quest line and you're, you know, leveling your Pokemon as you go and doing things. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm in a town. Oh, that's a that's the ice type gym. I, I have a really high level fire Pokemon. Maybe I I go in there and kind of see what's up. And then you find out like, oh, I'm actually I, I over leveled this gym by a bit. They're like level 20 and I'm like level 40. I'll just blast through this gym quick. And do I, I do wonder if that's going to end up either making gyms feel like they're not any different or worse, that they're largely inconsequential to the greater progression of the game. Right. And kind of harkens back to why I think that gyms are ultimately just causing a problem for them in terms of creating a natural story progression for these games and why i liked rcs so much is because it got rid of that but i don't think gyms need to go away i think it's just 
you get, you got to look at what you can do with that structure to make it work. Do you make it scale? I don't know if that's the answer. I don't know if I like that answer. I feel mm. like you could do more interesting things if you go that way. Um, I pitched an idea on Twitter that was like, what if you started out as a local gym leader? And so you were like the water gym leader and you could only train and raise Pokemon in your region, but then you could go fight another gym and take it over. And so now you have that Pokemon's like that region's right. Pokemon That's available cool. to you. And you kind of go on this conquest Pokemon conquest. Here we go. I do wonder if you're not doing that and the whole idea is just that you can go to different gyms whenever and they're just going to be static and kind of like they've always been. How do you make those gyms feel interesting, feel like challenges that you want to seek out versus just being these things that are like, oh, I'll beat them when I get to them or whatever. Yeah, indeed. I, I, I did ultimately come out with positive feelings about Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Not the least because it'll have mm. four player co op, which means that we're all going to play yes. together, right? Uh-huh. Oh, Blood yeah. God Night will happen. Uh, Blood God Pokemon Night. It'll be a good time. Just do you get those legendaries at the start of your journey? Because if they're the ones that are yeah. transporting you across, that's actually a, a, an interesting reversal right there. Seems like it. Yeah. It, I almost feel like instead of getting double jumping horse, you get motorcycle Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm into motorcycle Pokemon. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like Arceus where they're probably just going to have a Pokemon that is like a utility Pokemon for you. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think we've seen either of those legendaries in battle yet. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being the case where you have Pokemon that are utility Pokemon for you. And then maybe at some point you like earn their respect enough to be their battle companion or something. Imagine that, if that the like uh, legendaries should become your HM slaves, your, your uh Swiss Army knife. I am a great dragon of renowned power. Yeah, well, I'm going to need you to learn surf, strength, cut, and fly, all right? (laughs) What I found interesting is that Pokemon Legends Arceus Arceus, continues to loom large over uh, Pokemon. A lot of the discourse uh, in the wake of this reveal has been whether or not it matches up to Pokemon Legends, whether it looks as good whether the mechanics match up and it's hard for me to make a definitive judgment at this point, but I feel like Pokemon, I I think the main takeaway from it is that Pokemon legends Arceus really hit a chord with a big chunk of the community. Even if it wasn't always perfect in the way that it approached its various mechanics, it did have such a good core loop. And I think that uh, Pokemon fans want to see, you know, game freak build on that. We all we have talked in the past about how Game Freak tends to stumble a bit when they first enter a generation with a technology, and we all know how they, there were problems with Sword and Shield. But Sword and Shield, the main issue there was the open world area was, you know, not up to snuff graphics wise, but the rest of it looked great. Like people forget about that, and now I think they've had enough practice with Arceus that I think that. Uh, Scarlet and Violet will be significantly better mechanically and definitely graphically. Just a little bummed that it seems like Arceus isn't going to get long tail support. Um, mm-hmm. I was really hoping for some DLC or something to come out of that Pokemon Presents. Well, surely they're going to announce something. It's just going to be later. You'd think that, but like Scarlet Violet's not that far off. November is yeah. not that far away. And I, I'm starting to think that they're just going to let Arceus be and 
that's messed up in a few ways because now that kid's just trapped in Arceus times forever. But <laughs> um, happy Isekai kid. Yeah. Uh, but also like I I thought that game was just really cool. And I was almost hopeful that maybe by it being a different thing, by being a legends Arceus instead of, you know, a generational game that maybe they might continue to support it. You know, there's there is still room on the table for them to do something. But I I like that game a lot. I would continue to play that game even if I didn't like Scarlet and Violet. So um, I think it'll I'm get a hopeful, sequel or something. That'd be great. No, I, I don't think that's the last time we see it because it was so well received and it did so well. I'd love to see a Johto region version of that. Like, yeah, do I'd the background that. of sure. that area specifically. Uh, I would I would just go head over heels for that sort of thing. I was only bummed out that they didn't bring um, Pokemon. I wasn't able to transfer Infernape from Pokemon mm. Legends Arceus to Sword and Shield. It broke my heart. Broke mm-hmm. my tiny heart. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Pokemon Legends, or sorry, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet will be out on Nintendo Switch in November. And, you know, there's some debate over whether or not it will be a wholesale rethink or a more conservative update than we first assume. I, I'm kind of leaning more to the former than the latter, just because I think uh, the co-op and the uh, the open-ended exploration will be more consequential than maybe a lot of people are kind of giving it credit for. And it really seems like it, you see a lot of shots of um, the, the heroes hanging out with their, their Pokemon, uh, being able to take camera like selfies with the entire party and everything. So I'm kind of hopeful that there will be more social interaction with the individual Pokemon as well. I guess we'll find out as we learn more info on Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. All right. It's time now for the Nihon Falcom quest. beginning of our ongoing quest that's going to take us through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and the 2010s as we explore the entire history of Nihon Falcom. Who is Nihon Falcom? Why, it's the publisher behind the legendary Dragon Slayer series, Legend of Heroes, Ease, uh, best known for their action RPGs. It is one of the uh, oldest game publishers in Japan, traditionally more PC focused than console focused, though these days it's a little bit of both. But we're going to start out in the 1980s. Nihon Falcom, founded in 1981 by Masayuki Kato, based in Tachikawa, Tokyo, was basically more of a computer shop at first. A lot of their early games are apparently quite hard to come by because of this. Um, Eric pointed out some cool blogs about the early days right here. What, what did you learn, Eric? I so when I started putting together notes for this, I went looking back because obviously if you trace back to Nihon Falcom, their early days, uh, you're going to find a lot of Dragon Slayer, things like that. Mm. But um, they had a few predecessors before Dragon Slayer came out that were kind of games that you would expect from a PC developer at the time. Like there's a Super Mahjong and stuff like that. 
but a lot of really interesting blogs, uh, we might stick one in the, the show notes about people just trying to find some of their earliest works and preserve them. Uh, there was one about Galactic Wars, which was the first game that Nihon Falcom ever put out. And I believe a preservationist got their hands on it by just emailing um, one of the developers. <laughs> Can and I have like, it, please? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think they actually emailed Yoshio Kia, uh, who we'll talk about in a little bit here, but uh, just straight up said like, hey, we would like to preserve this because there are very few copies of this in existence and it would be terrible to lose like part of this legendary developer's history to time because they really did start out as a lot of early um, histories and stuff talked about them as being largely half computer shop, half development studio and you know they they are a notable pc rpg dev um they they developed a lot of games for the pc uh something that who can say whether it would come and become a problem later on (laughs) but for right now um they were one of the earliest ones out there and they had a lot of really cool stuff before dragon slayer really took off and and became the the basis for everything they did after 1984 yeah, uh, Nihon Falcom, I think one of the most interesting things about them is they, not even that long ago, they were one of the very first Japanese RPG developers to really embrace Steam as a platform. And that's mm-hmm. how I think mm-hmm. a lot of people in the West finally got familiar with their products is they were always, they had, you know, trails on Steam, they had ease on Steam, whereas even now you still have Japanese developers who are really, they, they're wishy-washy on Steam. It's getting better, but it's still not great. But Falcom was always there two, two feet in, like they were always a very PC based developer. And that's how I discovered Ease personally was, hey, this is on Steam. Oh, this is really good. This is this is like Zelda. I, I really enjoy this. Yeah, when we were doing the Pantheon selection for for this month, it was really funny because we were just going through and normally there's a discussion, you know, when we talk about the Pantheon stuff of like what's what what's playable like how reasonable is it to like put this up there because you don't want to put a put games up all the time that are like very difficult to get your hands on or, or whatever right yeah uh and everything was available on steam like it was no matter what games we chose for Nihon falcon month it was going to be steam deck city <laughs> and uh that really <laughs> does just folks. speak to like from their origins up to now they have been very honest to they they like the platform they like putting games on the pc even though they bounced around a lot in the in-between uh and weirdly enough they do feel like the steam deck rpg dev to me because so many of their games are also extremely playable on deck right now so it's funny trails in the sky is playable on steam deck but it says not supported <laughs> yeah but it works all right it's trails in the sky yeah does yeah. it work all right like does it uh... yeah it works fine if you just played in DirectX eight mode uh everything is perfectly okay like yeah. as i learned in our monthly game club currently happening on our discord go check it out patreon.com slash blood god pod mm-hmm. but i here's my question are we ever going to do faxanadu as a, a pantheon episode or is that going to be a pantheon mini my husband was always a huge fan of faxanadu and it's funny my brother was a fan of faxanadu he said he went to a friend's house and he played it he's like we're going to rent it someday and i'll show you and i said sure and we went to the rental shop. I thought Final Fantasy was Faxanadu. We rented Final Fantasy mm-hmm, instead of Faxanadu. Mm-hmm, and I said, mm-hmm. oh, crap, I hate this game. So <laughs> I did eventually play Faxanadu, and it is it is a, a pretty cool game, but I have to play more of it before I can really decide, yeah, this is Pantheon material. So it's not going to be consigned to the pandemonium. It's in the No, Pantheon no, no, it's, it doesn't deserve that. It's, it's a not in the pandemonium. 
I would consider for the Pantheon Mini. A Pantheon Mini would be good for it. It's uh, very much like Zelda 2, as I recall. And it's kind of infamously washed out looking, kind of brown, because it does take place underneath the world tree, which is dying. So your first brown and gray game, I guess, like before 2012. Kind of there's, made a that decent number of, the thing. there's a decent number of brown and gray NES games that we're, I true. guess we're trying to go for more of a realistic perspective, but ended up just looking washed out instead. Mm-hmm. I think Konami was the king of making games look kind of old and crumbly and mossy with that with that palette for the NES. Like any of the Castlevania games, it's just like, holy crap. You, you know, knew what you were doing. It's really nice that we never ran into that problem again in the games industry. You yes, know, we just it, never it, had that problem again. But it never that. happened again. Yeah. Everything yeah. was colorful from then on. Yay. Neon Falcom worked on PCA PC eighty eight games like Super Mahjong, Galactic Wars, and Panorama Panorama Island. If you go back and listen to our PCA PC eighty eight episode, mm-hmm. uh, you'll remember that the PC eighty eight was very much the heyday of Japanese RPGs on PC. Mm-hmm. Uh, once we got into the nineties, there was still a fairly vibrant scene, but it was more it got progressively more niche more hentai focused and more more shmup (laughs) focused that kind of thing yes so pc88 was very much where it was um the the thing that's interesting to me about nihon falcom is that it still feels so directly connected to its roots um uh back when yoshio kia who made games there and was also a store regular would be like coming into the computer shop and then started making games and mm-hmm. ended up making Dragon Slayer in 1984, right? I I feel like so many games become very corporate, grow really big, that kind of thing. But Nihon Falcom in so many ways still feels like a, a hobbyist publisher. It I, does. I've met, like I've, it, met their it, pre- I've met their president. He's like, yeah, I was, a, I was a big fan. And then one day I started working there and next thing I knew I was president. Cool. <laughs> next thing I knew I was president. We kind of fell into it. No, there's still a very kind of down-home feel to Nihon mm-hmm. Falcom, and I, it's, it's very chill. They know what they're doing, and they're glad to do it. And they're kind of like, uh, I don't know if you remember the, the South Park episode where, uh, where Family Guy and the Simpsons were, were fighting, theoretically, and in the background you had the King it's of the Bob Hill Bob and team. Henry's favorite episode. Is it really? I got to no. talk to them about that. Okay, <laughs> was, they hate it. I was, I was, in case you didn't notice, I was being sarcastic. I did not sarcasm. notice. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, they were kind of the, in the background. You had the team for King of the Hill just kind of look doing their thing, and there's a banner that says "Congratulations on ten years." So they're just kind of hanging out, doing what they know how to do, and everyone else around them is in this flurry and tizzy of how do we reinvent ourselves? How do we do this? How do we make this movie movie ass production? And Falcom's just like, yeah, we're making games. Hey, anybody want to go hang out with uh, Adol again? And everyone's like, yay! So that's really all I have to do. Never made another ease. We'll get back. We'll get to that, though. But back to the 1980s. Uh, so Yoshi Okiya, uh, he made games there. He was a store regular, kind of a nerd, ended up making Dragon Slayer. Dragon Slayer, one of the first, if not the first, action RPGs mm-hmm. ever made. And in fact, it predated Dragon Quest. We always think about <clears throat> we always think about Dragon Quest being the first, and it certainly did its share to popularize the genre in Japan and give the the genre a distinctly Japanese bent. But 
Mm-hmm. Dragon Slayer, two full years earlier than Dragon Quest. Yeah. Although it's more of an action RPG, so it's a little bit different, I guess. Yes. And I think more in line with kind of Western sensibilities in some ways. Mm-hmm. There, There is an element of just playing the hits that I love about Nihon Falcom, where like they they discover something that works really well for them, and they just do more of that. And they do it very well, and they, they deliver exactly what that fan base wants time and time again. And they're like, they're, this is kind of the story of, of their 80s, is they just start laying that foundation. They get the Dragon Slayer up and running, and then start making Dragon Slayer games. And then eventually... In, in 87, they make Ease, and they're like, cool, we're making Ease games now. We got two series. Let's go. And then later on, they might there, there's a third one that like kicks up in the 90s. I forgot the name of it. It starts with a B. It's like, I, I don't know. Well, we'll talk about it in the 90s. We'll get to it when quest. we get to the 90s. But it's they they play the hits, and, and they play the hits very well. And, you know, even though there's fluctuations within there, it, it feels like they... It doesn't even feel like I don't want this to sound like they're just, oh, they're doing it for money. They just keep doing the same thing over and over again. No, they just they find a thing they're good at. And they're like, yeah, let's keep making more of those. We we seem to be good at it. And I love that going back through this history that they have where you can tell after Dragon Slayer, they're just like, wow, that worked really well. Let's do that again. <laughs> I remember <laughs> learning about ease or as I knew it, wise. Wise. Everyone mm-hmm. called it wise at the time. And it seemed to be out on everything. <laughs> Yes, it really yes. was. Yeah. Uh, Eric, you said start with the B. I immediately thought Bales of Biro because I just that's how my mind works. But do you like yeah. bump count combat? Because we got bump combat. I was never. See, here's the thing about I didn't know about ease is that the early games are bump combat and the later ones are much more hacky slashy Zelda combat. And so when I played the E6, I said, oh, OK, this is a lot more of what I want because I can't remember if it was Hydelide that was first or Ease, but I, I do remember Hydelide kind of became a little bit of a joke here because it was it was a very, very early Famicom game, and then it was released quite a bit later on the, the Nintendo when by the time, by this time Zelda was the thing, so Zelda kind of really elevated itself uh, above it. And I just remember there was, there was a kick-ass ad campaign for it, but it wasn't a very good game. Ease kind of... Uh, Helped it out, I suppose, that, that whole genre. Do you know what Nihon Falcom's first ever RPG was? Oh, oh it was... I um, feel like we talked about this in the console pa- quest, and Panorama I can't remember. Toe, I think is what it was called. There That's you go. Name. Good job, yeah. Eric. Panorama Toe. I did my toe. research today. <laughs> is it a panorama of a toe? Do you just kind of scan it slowly? <laughs> no, T-T-O-H. It's spelled T-O-H. Oh, yes. okay. They keep doing this. You got to stop doing this, Falcom. Came out on the PC eight eight oh one in nineteen eighty three, my birthday. Ah, uh, and it's a little bit of a stretch to call it an RPG because its its elements were quite limited. Um, it didn't have statistics or leveling systems. It had real time combat with a gun, but <laughs> it was kind of close to the action RPG formula that would ever come out. And it actually had a day night cycle. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've been kind of sitting here attributing the day night cycle to Dragon Quest 3, even though that's that's terribly wrong. It has to have been Mm. like RPGs before that that did it. But Dragon Quest 3 was the most significant one I remember. You could be bit by snakes that would poison you and you would Uh, have to heal yourself. 
So and uh, HP would go down as you walked. So thanks for that mechanic. So that's a little bit of a bit of a a little bit of a roguelike thing, right? Because in roguelikes, you would be hungry. You would have a hunger mechanic, and your your hunger would or your stamina would go down and such. But um, in nineteen so nineteen eighty four, they create Dragon Slayer, and Dragon Slayer was really the the series that put Nihon Falcom on the map, kicked off a huge series the company in the process and truly became one of the ultimate pillars of jrpgs that subsequently spun up legend of heroes and the xanadu series and ease and they were kind of off to the races by the late 1980s so yeah that's <laughs> neon falcom um they started they started small and then they kind of established themselves as a, a PC power and they never went away, which is mm-hmm. actually kind of impressive in this in this very in unstable industry of ours. That's why I actually have to give them props for really hanging on to that uh, Legacy of Heroes slash Dragon Slayers title for and just being open about putting it on their newer games because video games in general are not really a, a hobby that feels like it has much of a legacy. A lot of things get deleted, a lot of things get lost. And so I'm glad that there's some sort of like continuity there where Nihon Falcom is just honoring its legacy for lack of a mm-hmm. better term. I like that. I also want to shout out that uh, Yuzo Koshiro, who would later go on to work on games like Streets of Rage and stuff, uh, yeah. cut his teeth on on early Nihon Falcom games. That's right. Yeah. Uh, first job was at this company uh, at the age of 18. So even even in the early days, they knew what a banger was when they heard it because Koshiro, <laughs> nothing but bangers. I so. mean, Koshiro did act razor. That's all you really have to say. Yeah. Anyone who works on a Streets of Rage soundtrack is like a certified like S tier composer in my mind because Streets of Rage has never had a bad soundtrack. And it's true. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Koshiro. Excellent. Excellent work. So they established Dragon Slayer, but. I would argue that it was really Xanadu that mm-hmm. kind of established the action RPG genre as we knew it. Still a full year before the original Dragon Quest uh, had character statistics and a large quest. Had some really cool art. I love that Xanadu art. Have you have you seen it? It's uh, very very anime. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's kind of badass very actually. Eighties nineties anime like that aesthetic is like trapped in time and. We'll never get it back, unfortunately. It had a side-scrolling view during an exploration and an overhead view uh, during combat. And you could visit towns with training facilities. Um, Equipment would change the player character's visible appearance, which honestly you don't see in a lot of games today. Yeah. And it had platform jumping, which we all love. Of course it did. Of course it had platforming. Jeez. had an early karma morality system. Uh, It makes me think of like how rpgs in the 80s would really try to push the boundaries of what was actually possible on a 1980s computer (laughs) yeah you got to give it props for that i always loved seeing uh, even on the nintendo seeing developers just push to see what they could do just throwing things at a wall it was an interesting time for game development for sure there we go yes i that is one of my all-time favorite that is covers i would i would have a poster of that in my house and people would be like okay cat <laughs> that is that is a 80s as anime as oh, I love isn't it, it perfect it's, it's so it's beautiful good. that is put, that's going on my wall 
that that is an art style you just don't see these days and you hate that it's not around but you see this and you're like oh i'm in for a wild time this is gonna be great there was a movie of this too wow yeah know what i'm doing later i feel like xanadu isn't as well known in the west as it could be but i don't it think was, it is it was at all. quite important so we have to do a pantheon on it and then we can dig it up Play it on a classic PC 8801. Everyone's getting their PC 88. All right, everyone. Dusting it out, taking it out of storage. Go to Japan, dig through some some garbage files, and good luck to you. (laughs) It sold really well. It ended up selling like 400,000 copies. And then Xanadu Scenario 2 was released the following year and was one of the first examples of an expansion pack. So Nihon Falcom pioneering how to get more money from people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they deserve it. Uh, and Yuzo Koshiro's first video game music soundtrack as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So very, uh, very momentous in that regard. Uh, Yoshio Kia said in 1987, Wizardry and Ultima were the only two kinds of RPGs. And so he wanted to make something new with Dragon Slayer, which was kind of a bridge to the action RPG genre. And Xanadu took those ideas to the next level. After which, more and more action RPGs were released to the point that action RPGs became one of the main genres of computer games. He also didn't like random encounters, which is good because <laughs> I don't like random encounters either. I don't think I'm with likes you, Yoshio Kia. You're smart. Wise beyond his ears. And then in 1986, there was Dragon Slayer Junior Romancia. Aww. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which was kind of a, a simplified version of Xanadu. Uh, removed the customer character customization, simplified the numerical statistics into icons, took place entirely in a side-scrolling view rather than switching to a separate overhead combat. Um, and so it was more like a side-scrolling action-adventure game. Mm. And then in 1987, we got Dragon Slayer 4, Dreisel Family, <laughs> which returned to the more traditional RPG mechanics of Xanadu. Um, you should all go check out the the Dragon Slayer episode, by the way, that we did uh, at the request of, of one of our patrons, in which we also cover a lot of this. We mm. uh, have the Dragon Slayer episode, and I, I think I mentioned that the TurboGrafx-16, as in the American system, has a Dragon Slayer game with really, really terrible dubbing. And I, <laughs> I encourage you all to go find that and listen to it, because it'll it'll change your life for the better, I promise. The The thing that I took away a lot from putting these notes together besides like just always getting enamored with the early days of a company is that I think this is one era of JRPG that we have not really mined for nostalgia very much, which is kind of a bummer. Um, You know, like the early days of square and, and other developers have already been plumbed multiple times over to the depths, but I, I was looking for ways to play a lot of these games on modern systems or or even just to get a hold of them. And in, you know, as we have this wave of HD 2D, it is interesting to see which games pop up and and get the love and stuff and which ones feel kind of left by the wayside. And it is part of that just because Nihon Falcom just didn't latch on in the West until later on. Like, is is that just these games did not? I mean, their games did get ported in some ways to the nes you know they did but they weren't right. very good as i recall yeah. or at least not fa- not spectacular in the way they could be on the pc i i there were a few i know ease um oath and felgana got one kind of two, a, a port I think. yeah ease one and two like became ease origin right and yeah then that's right oath and felgana had something but 
it, I, I'm just always curious why some of these get the pixel remasters and the HD 2D and all that. And then some of them just kind of get left by the wayside. And I, I do wonder if part of that is not necessarily because of the quality of the video game, but but maybe because it just never had the the impact in the West that some of these other games did, you know? Well, a game like Sorcerian, which was a direct descendant from Xanadu and came out on a lot of platforms, came out on the 8801 and DOS and Mega Drive and MSX2, Mm -hmm. PC Engine CD, all the way up to iOS and Nintendo Switch. Never came out in North America. I think there was a DOS version that came out in North America, maybe, but like by and large, Sorcerian is pretty much unknown in North America, but is you know, seen as quite significant in mm-hmm. Japan. So, you sure. know, so many of these games, because they never really got, never really got console ports in North America. It was the same with Legend of Heroes. You know, I feel like it wasn't until Trails of the Sky that North Americans really knew much about that series at all. For sure. So it was quite obscure for the most part. But uh, it, it, the thing that's kind of amazing, it's almost like a big bang. For Nihon mm, Falcom, mm. right? From humble beginnings to, especially from the, the Xanadu line, so many games coming out. And, you know, it's just a lot easier to make uh, PC RPGs in these days. You, you can crank them out every few months. That's what we saw with um, id Software and that kind of thing. But a uh, very, very important moment. Yeah, like, I think I remember reading that Falcom was a little bit hesitant to go on to DOS where that's mm-hmm. why I stuck to PC 98 and 88 for so long. Very much so. So Nihon Falcom 1980s, a big, big start for the company. And so many of our favorite series found their roots in these early days of RPG history. And I'm just wondering any final thoughts before we move on? Yeah, really just, I'd love ways to play these in, in more modern, uh, accessible ways but it is really cool to go back and and see some of this stuff especially like the pc88 stuff that feels very foreign to the way that you know by the time i was playing video games uh was was well gone in a way but Mm. it's it's really cool to see a lot of these early roots and and bump i love bump combat i don't know there's something fun about that (laughs) (laughs) i just don't like it I know, I know, like it's it's easy to grumble about it, but it's it's such an entertaining novel idea that I just love it. But um, it's it's again, you know, I, I talked about this when we did our monolith soft quest. But you read these stories of how these studios started up with just a, a dream and a prayer and a desire to make the games they want to make, and there's so much just passion there in the idea of this team working in a half studio half computer shop putting together dragon slayer because they think it rules and they're like wow people really like that let's keep making more i guess and and just building up from there but never really losing that heart i like that i'm excited to like go through more of their uh games especially as we get closer to the ones that are more available to play like trails in the sky and stuff like that the dream of an early day yeah I just appreciate the fact that they exist in the form they exist in. Like Eric said, they still have that real, like I said, down-home feel, half computer shop, half game developer, and they just never really lost that that feeling. Like you said, Kat, you were talking to uh, the president who just came rose out from being a fan. Like, you don't hear about that these days, ever. You haven't heard about that for a long time, and they just kind of have that 
that feeling to them that they know what they're doing. They enjoy what they do. And if you like what they do, great. Come on along for the ride. If not, oh, there's a 10 billion other RPGs you can be playing. But yeah, they're definitely a fascinating company. And I'm, I'm looking forward to going. We, we have talked about them before, but I'm looking forward to going more into what they're all about. Well, in that regard, please look forward to Nihon Falcom 1990s as we really start to delve into the meat of that company's existence. Mixing my metaphors, I apologize. Okay, it's time (laughs) now for the Summer of Gundam. series in which we explore all things Mobile Suit Gundam and talk about what we've been watching in the series. And I think we've all kind of moved on to Gundam The Origin. I finished uh, episode three earlier this week. It's getting better and better each passing episode. But Eric, you seem to be a little bit uh, a little down on it. I'm working on episode three right now. Um, yeah, that's actually what I'm going to go do after this pod is, is finish episode three. But I it's making me like Char less, and I don't yes. like that. I don't. You don't like that like he's a that. total psychopath. That well, more like he's arbitrarily a total psychopath because I do it's not, not feel arbitrary. Like, he will just do literally anything to achieve his end. They, they set him up as like this this Damien evil child at the beginning, like like first shot in this thing. Once you get past like the you know the in media res of him being the red comet and all that, you go back to his childhood and you got his like. Uh, you know, overthrow the the government father and all that, like like going crazy and and all that. And Shar is already there, just like doing the evil uh, Antichrist stare at the door, like oh, father. Stare. He he yeah. reminds me of whenever they get a kid to play the Antichrist in some way. Like that is what young Shar reminds me of. He's, he's a, a villain. He's Linda Blair from The Exorcist. But- but they don't. He's not the hero. He's not. But they he's don't an anti-hero set it up. They don't set it up. Like but what not... made him that way? Has he always been that way? Was he yeah. born evil? I have to say, I'm sorry to interrupt here. I have to say, seeing more of the movie than you guys have, or more of the series rather, I just didn't get that impression from the evil Antichrist stare at the beginning. Like from what mm-hmm. I can tell, he starts off respecting his father. He starts off being a pretty. Not a normal kid, but he has that seed to go very, very wrong. And when things go very, very wrong, that seed kind of blossoms. And you really see that at a very specific point. I won't spoil for you, but you can probably guess some of the stuff that happens to him that makes him go. No, he snaps so early. He's, he's evil snap, so early. Well, think. here's the thing. He and Sela both go through incredible trauma. They do. And like the destruction of their family. And they respond to it differently. Yeah, yeah. Sayla arguably responds to it in a way that's not, you know, it's like healthier. You know, she wants to help people. She wants to be a doctor and all that. And Char, like it develops this kind of kind of cold and terrifying side yeah. of him. That's the thing. Where he's yeah. willing to do literally anything to achieve his ends. Char is many, many years beyond his age. And you see that from the very start. And that is what kind of ruins him. As a, as a person, like it's what twists and warps him. And he's also, uh, as you go through the movie, you see the only person he cares about is his sister. And he's driven to do everything for her to protect her and everyone else can go to hell. He's always, he's a master manipulator, basically. When you get later in the movie, series, whatever, and you see what he does with Garma, you can see 
I'm, I, am I just know people that. like that, and they're terrifying. You know I just what I mean? love that when he goes, oh, everything is red on the battlefield. A good color. That's <laughs> just such yeah. a solo yeah. moment. I love it. I just... I, th- I wanted them to start earlier. Maybe that's it. I feel like you do not get a basis. In the womb? <laughs> no. He's, he's like 12. He's, he's a, like he's 12. He's a whole room. Yeah. Like, you start with the death of his father. Like, like um, Zeon Zoom Daikun or whatever um, is, is on screen for all of like three minutes before he drinks the bad water and dies. That was and, the thing. It's like episode two... They're like, okay, so anyway, allow us to contextualize everything. And yeah. I was watching with Amy and she goes, uh, wow, I really wish they had this at the first episode. Yeah. And that's that's part of my problem is when you start with like like episode one, you've got that weird scene between Kaecilia and and Char that I just still am not sure what they were going for with any of that. It was a very weird scene. It's still weird. All everything with Kaecilia so far has just been very strange to me. And, so and finish up episode three. It's like a good ending. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this will like change courses, but I always, the thing I always liked about Char was that he's not just like, you know, he is a mastermind. He is that like planning guy, but there was also this sort of like, I don't know, carefree like like he had a bruce wayne aspect to his batman you know like there was there's sort of that like carefree playboy aspect alongside like manipulative brooding badly in need of therapy uh therapy psychopath like there was a balance there and i feel like they're just eliminating all bruce wayne from this and now all i've got is just angry brooding batman and i'm i'm just not wild about extra Uh, well all of the characters are very extra in this series. Mm-hmm. Like it took their core personality traits and really emphasizes them to you know, a great uh, design, degree. Who they do really was uh, really well done in this movie. Uh, what's the name of the patriarch of the Zeon family? Like the big grandfather Degma? dude. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. He's done really well, especially his dynamic with Garma and you can see how much he like loves him and is, he says like, I should have had you be a scholar. I should never have had you be mm-hmm. a warrior. And it's just actually very yeah. touching. So we're joking that Zabi family gatherings must be a hell of a thing because <laughs> Kieran and Cassilia are like constantly sniping at each other and scheming. And meanwhile, like Dozol and Garma are off playing Super Mario Kart and just having a good time. Yeah. It's like yeah. it reminds me of my satyrs when I was younger. Like you'd have the, the uncles all fighting with each other at the table and like the cousins would be throwing food at each other or whatever. Like, yeah, we were a lot like the Zabi family. So I love that Dolzold's a, a teddy bear. It's great. But yeah. Oh, yeah. I think MVPs of the series for me are still Rambaral and Hamon. Like those are those two oh, yeah. are just I want a series just about that, which would basically be Cowboy Bebop. But like I want that series of just those two doing cool space shit being like old and over this shit but like still getting into <laughs> bar fights and all that the the scene where where ramba like just beats up some some federation soldiers in the bar and everybody's just like just try not to make too much of a mess try like, not to make a mess just, yeah <laughs> yeah like he literally like puts his hands behind the bar and his his buddies just bandaging him up and being like all right here we go again like <laughs> <laughs> oh now i gotta disinfect everything yeah over in the Summer of Gundam channel, I asked, uh, as usual, for a question. And Shin40k asks, what is the best AU series, in your opinion? That would be the alternate universe. So there's the Universal Century, and then there's a much more anime style. And it's kind of a hard question for me, because 
I think they're all a little bit flawed in the, their own way, but the first quite, the first answer that popped into my head was actually Gundam 00, which uh, interesting premise, Gundam 00. Basically, mm-hmm. you have it, it's much more near future than a lot of the other Gundam shows and it you have the European alliance and the American alliance and the Eurasian alliance and Humans haven't really gone into space yet. You have like a space elevator with like low Earth orbit space stations, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And then, and, and there's like simmering tension between these three major powers. And then just five Gundams just show up and start wrecking mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. And they're like, mm-hmm. we have declared our intention to end all war. <laughs> and oh, by the way, and, and they were created by this, uh, this super genius, super genius named Aelia Schuenberg who uh, created the 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 Gundam drive or something like that. And uh, they just kind of came out of nowhere and they're just going to end all war. And all of the powers are basically dealing with the chaos of these five Gundams just showing up and constantly intervening in global conflicts. And the story kind of unfolds from there. And the the hero is a child soldier who fought in like all of these war-torn conflicts and constantly goes, I am a Gundam. So, yeah, no, he's interesting, but uh, it's well animated. Season one in particular is very good. <clears throat> uh, I think it's very accessible, very enjoyable show with a lot of like great side characters. It's kind of a different feel from your, your typical Gundam show. It has really good designs, great music. And uh, I, I had good feelings about it, actually, and like a really great finale to season one. You could just wrap up the series with season one, honestly. Season mm-hmm. two... Um, Season two completely is off the rails. It's it's hilarious. It just goes so anime in an enjoyable way. To be clear, I actually like season two, but I find season two to be like a totally, totally different series. So mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. want a semi-modern, big budget AU Gundam series, uh, I haven't watched a lot of Iron-Blooded Orphans, so I can't really speak to that one, but Gundam 00 That's was very good. good. Yeah. yeah, I'm a big IBO fan. But Gundam Double O also also very good. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think Seed holds up particularly well. It has that flash animation look to it, and mm-hmm. Wing, you know, Wing is boys kissing, but also it's just complete nonsense. Wing is it really meme is. territory. I wish it's bring pure it back meme just, territory. Just to confuse the Tumblr kids, I'd, I think that'd be amazing. It's so I've good never though. Actually, sat down and watched the Gundam, but I don't like that super shonen anime tournament anime kind of situation i find it much more appealing in super robot wars than i do in an actual series it's got like a zoids vibe from what Mm -hmm. i remember of what i've seen of it it reminded me a lot of zoids for some reason zoids is fun zoids is a fun series it's more fun fun to watch g gundam and in random movie clips or through the context of a video game than Mm -hmm. it is to Mm -hmm. watch an actual series so but i know that there are plenty of people who really like that martial arts anime kind of feels so i just like more it's power to my you. favorite thing yeah i understand where you're coming from i didn't care for gundam x at all i actually mm-hmm. found it really boring so i bounced off it halfway through i just i don't i don't understand what people see in that series i really don't um mm. I, I could probably talk at some length with austin walker who would probably explain why exactly he likes gundam x but but tldr it's like an alternate reality where you know it's a post-apocalyptic world colonies come and destroy most of the planet and you know it's a little oh. bit mad max but not mad max enough mm. it's it's a uh, gundam wing or it's gundam days of ruin 
is what we're doing. Yeah, it's Gundam, Gundam Days of Days Ruin is a good, <laughs> yeah. good description, I think. So, oh, and then there's a Witch from Mercury, which it's the the trailer is literally this this witch rides a Gundam, and I'm like, I'm in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll watch it. <laughs> I guess brooms, Gundam builds screw the brooms. <laughs> I guess Gundam Build Fighters is technically an AU show, but it's also just pure fan service you know so i can hear mike williams screaming from from texas <laughs> like I, <laughs> mike gundam williams build fighters it. embodies everything that i hate about gundam how's that Ouch. for but it's well done it's well done fan service if you like the models whatever the gundams have boobs or something i don't understand what's so appealing about them <laughs> it's it's, cool. it's metabots if, if you've seen oh, metabots it's metabots, metabots but the metabots yeah. are gundams yeah with boobs I don't, right. know if they, well, I don't know if they give them boobs. Maybe. <laughs> I'm just being an asshole. Don't Only don't one way to me. find out. <laughs> well, later this week, as a release of this episode, you can look forward to our Toonami deep dive, which will include a lot of discussion about Gundam Wing with uh, Henry Gilbert. So please look forward to that. And now it's time to wrap it up. Nadia, take us home. Um, so I used to take the bus, the public transit, home from school, to and from school, really. And uh, I don't know if you two grew up anywhere near a robust public transit system, but basically the way it worked is that students could buy discounted tickets back then, but you had to have a certain card that this, the, the, the TTC, Toronto Transit Commission, the staff would come into your school and have a day where they take a picture and issue you this card. And the idea is you're supposed to pay with your student ticket, but you have to show your card to say, hey, I'm a student, not like just some leech trying to, to pay for student tickets. So my card, and I don't understand how this happened, but at some point, I guess, I Spice Girls were really big at the time, and I took a picture of a sticker of Scary Spice, because she was my favorite, and put it on my my, my profile. So basically, um, my bus card looked like I was a a, a black woman who was screaming and I would, I swear to God, I would show my card and the bus drivers would not say a word, even though I, I had changed. But I don't think, I guess they didn't care very much because I had another friend who she had an air bubble trapped under her card because the lamination went wrong. So she tried to iron it out and she smeared her face all over her information. And Oh God, why would you try to iron it out? <laughs> she wasn't that smart, I guess, but she had this this smeared thing across, like her, like a, a face smear, eliminating her her information. And she still showed the card, and they were like, "Okay, that's fine." It was like, "You ever seen the Simpsons episode where Marge has the the shirt that got smeared?" Yes. That's yeah. Exactly what yeah. 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 Like. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. Here I was. I was Scary Spice. She was Smear Woman, and we we're just <laughs> here. We go. Here's your card. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, go on. Go on the best. So. I wanted to keep it up, but eventually I chickened out and I said, like, if I get confronted about this, I'm going to lose my mind. So I just, I ended the charade and I was no longer Scary Spice. And oh. I have to say, Spice Girls really weren't bad. They were pretty good. Oh, Spice Girls life. were great. Yeah. They were, they yeah. were jamming. Yeah. They they parachuted into the Olympics and, and sang. Who doesn't love the, the Spice Girls? I forgot girls? about that. I thought for some reason I was thinking it was the Queen who parachuted into the Olympics, but I guess no. Oh, no, she happen. did. She did. She They showed up at the end of the Olympics. 
Oh, okay. okay. So yeah, they parachuted the queen in, like Dumbo Drop or something like that. Can't do yeah, that so. these days. <laughs> no, I don't think the queen's going to take another parachute ride in her life. Uh, I Look, the bus driver didn't care about basic things, cosmetic appearances, aesthetic. The bus driver saw your soul, and your soul was Scary Spice. So it's true. it was okay. Oh, well, we all knew that. <laughs> Nadia bilking the uh, Toronto bus system. <laughs> Well, killing. I mean, I had the card. I was just lazy about it. Like, it's, I can't remember if you had to pay for the card. I think you had to pay, like, maybe $2 or something like that. But, I mean, if you didn't show your card, that's how you would know the bus driver would say, show me your card. And then they would have, they would have, like, probably nabbed me for that. Because if you show your, if you just kind of flash your card, they're like, yeah, go on ahead. But, yeah, so I was scary spice for a little while. And I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. We, we never had, like, uh, growing up, we're, america like we don't have good public transport here especially not down here in texas but uh we did have like student ids that were used for like checking books out or Mm. um during lunch you would like scan that and that would be how they would like detract your lunch from your account and stuff like that because they also sold things like they had the lunch lines but then they had the other lunch line that was like, if you wanted the really good stuff, like a slice of pizza or a candy bar or something, you like go there and pay a ton of money. Like, like really? I'm talking three fifty for like a Snickers bar. That and that's, sucks. that's where they really extorted the money from. you. <laughs> that was young Eric learning about capitalism in the premium lunch line. <laughs> My husband just kind of told me about stuff like that. Cause he grew up in America and it's just, I was just like, that stuff doesn't really register to me because didn't really have that going on. We did have to pay for our own food if we wanted like lunch, but mm-hmm. most of the time people went home for lunch or they brought their own lunch. But uh, even so, you could buy poutine was a big thing, of course, and uh, chicken burgers were a big thing. Fries and gravy were a big thing. Cookies. We didn't. Nobody ate anything healthy. Jamaican patties, pizza pops. Holy crap! Nobody. I don't think I ever saw oh, yeah. anyone eat like a real the meal. Junk from- food was incredible in those schools. There are plenty of kids who just ate. They just drank a coke, a, a, bottle, mm-hmm. a can of coke. You know, and that was lunch. That's yeah. lunch. Yeah, I uh, I was good. I ate. Uh, I ate the regular lunch, but I had a friend who every single day got a plain hamburger patty. That was it. That's it. Just a patty. Yeah. Just a patty. Okay. Wait, bun, right? Or just just a patty. and a bun. Just okay, a bun good. And the patty and some fries. That sounds like the most Midwestern thing I've ever heard of. Sorry, cat. It is. My- no, actually. My sister growing up had a friend that when we went to McDonald's, we would have to pull through McDonald's and she would make us order a cheeseburger with no burger. She just wanted Why? a bun with cheese. And I still don't understand to this. And it wasn't a vegan thing or anything like that. It wasn't like a dietary thing. It was just explicitly she just wanted bread and cheese. a bread and cheese. And yeah, not even a grilled cheese. Like, like yeah, it was just grilled cheese. It was just McDonald's. a slice of American cheese, not warm, on a Ew. on a <laughs> on a bun. <laughs> like, not and warm. we had to every time we had to explain it, and it was just like no, no. <laughs> I can just picture the poor was, woman person behind was the. Very, uh... Was very happy when my sister and that friend stopped being friends. <laughs> <laughs> was it because of the weird? It was for the benefit of the family, sandwiches? all right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this week's episode of act of the blood god thank you so much for listening uh once again if you enjoy the podcast please go ahead and leave us a review on the podcatcher of your choice you can follow me on 
Twitter at the underscore Capot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And Eric is at C-M-O-O-S-I. You can subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod, where for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to our Discord and also support the pod. We really appreciate it. But there's also tons of bonus content out there, including the Pantheon of the Blood God and our Toonami episode, which is coming up very soon. We'll be back next week, as always, to talk more about the genre we love. But until then, for Nadia, Eric, myself, thanks for listening. Happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.